0: And welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, ScriptsAndScribes.com. Before we get started, I wanted to give an unsponsored shout out to a longtime listener of the podcast, uh, who's a great guy and a talented writer himself, Clint Williams. Clint's a final draft big break winner and Austin semifinalist. He's always been such a great supporter of the podcast for a really long time. So I just wanted to give Clint a little free unsolicited promotion here. Check out his scripts on the Blacklist website or just hit him up at ClintW3 on Twitter. Uh, That's it. That's just a thank you to Clint. And uh, okay, on with the show. Our guest today is a lit manager and producer who has worked at Village Roadshow, Appian Way, and now runs management and production company Bellevue Production with a strong roster of writer, director, clients, and various projects in development and production all over town. Uh, too many of which to list in this intro, but we'll talk about some of them. Welcome back, my good buddy John Zalzerni. Thanks for Thank coming you. back Thank on, John. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. It was a, always a highlight. Um, before we get started, if you haven't listened to John's previous podcasts, you definitely should. Uh, he's just dis- out, he's dished out, excuse me, so much great information not only on representation but on writing, the industry, and just being a better writer in general. Um, so I highly recommend you taking a listen because there's there's some gems in there. Uh, You can find them on our website, scriptsandscribes.com, as mentioned before. Um, So if you enjoyed this podcast, go check those ones out as well. Um, So thanks for having us back. It's always great to talk to you, John. Always a pleasure. Always a highlight. We're the new Bellevue offices, Mm -hmm. which we won't give out the address to, so people people don't show
1: up. That was why I moved. Oh, there's other reasons we moved. We have a nice bigger office now. But yeah, people were showing up, which I think we talked about in a previous podcast. but. I would put that as the number one thing not to do. There, right. There's your tip of the day: don't show up at unsolicited people's offices. Right,
0: that's that's a no-no, manager. But you're also a producer, mm-hmm. which we can get into uh, the whole. People conversation. are always
1: people. It's weird. People are always really you know what is the difference? What right. differentiation? What? And everyone has their own rules on that. But yeah, it is something that people ask a lot about. So we can definitely get into that. Yeah.
0: Um, but before we get into the whole producer versus manager discussion, mm-hmm. uh, let's talk about what you have going on now. I know mm-hmm. Eli at Netflix.
1: Yeah, Eli just came, came out, out of out. Netflix. Everybody watch it. Long tail streaming. You yeah. Know. Um, Infinite, going. Paramount. Yeah, so which we. Which a... we
0: actually have, you introduced me to Ian, Ian mm-hmm. Shore, the writer of Infinite, longtime mm-hmm. friend and client of yours, mm-hmm. who now has shot. Uh, a big gigantic yeah. epic which we discussed in one of the previous podcasts so go listen to him i know
1: mm-hmm. um but let's talk about what's going on with infinite right now absolutely it is they wrapped shooting uh we are in post-production uh and it comes out uh august 7th of this year so 2020. great so yeah really really exciting it looks amazing i'm incredibly excited about it i mean you know it's one of those crazy things you know ian and i were on set and we're just like you know in London. And we're just like, holy, holy crap, you know? This is, you know, came from, you know, a, a small self-published book um, that was great, but didn't have a huge readership that um, a really talented guy, uh, Rafi Krone uh, brought to me, um, knowing it'd be, he thought it'd be great for Ian Shore. Um, and Ian had always loved the concept and really sparked to it and, you know, worked with the author of that, Eric, uh, ended up optioning it from him. Um, just to recap the story. yeah, And absolutely. then we worked on it. Ian and I worked on it uh, alongside Rafi in terms of developing spec. And that took a little while, you know, because it, it is a very complex world. And, and the book is great, but, you know, um, very um, philosophical and insular. Um, and the movie needed a little bit more um moves an action movie so right. um and so eric had some re- great stuff in there but it was also a bit of expanding the universe and, and things like that and so ian and, and myself and rafi worked on that and obviously ian doing the line share because he's the writer um and we sold it to paramount um really quickly in uh in 2017 um and he was on the blacklist that year which is great and then you know, partnered up with Lorenzo Bonaventura and Mark Veradian at his at Lorenzo's company, uh, and then yeah, and then you know Lorenzo had a long relationship with Antoine Fuqua, mm-hmm. um, got it to Antoine. Antoine loved it. Um, we originally worked with Chris Evans, uh, who wasn't able to do it, so eventually moved on to Mark. Uh, got it to Mark Wahlberg, who really resonated with it. Um, and there was a long history there. Mark and Antoine had done Shooter together, Lackey's, as, as well as Lorenzo. Lorenzo produced that. And Lorenzo had done Deepwater Horizon and two Transformers movies with Mark. So there's a long kind of history there. Um, and then, yeah, it went into production last year and, and it's coming out this year. And it, it honestly, from selling a spec to having it come out in you know 2020, that may, through three, two and a half years, may sound long to people, but you um, and I know that's, that's, and it's a very expensive movie. It's, you know, I won't say the exact budget number, but it is... Um, it's big and and you know i think people are going to be really excited about it and you know uh, technically it's not original you know ip um in the sense of obviously it's based on eric's book but you know a lot of things that get made especially at that budget level tend to be toys or comic book tv show reboots or comics and i think this was a case where yes it was a piece of ip but you know, as good as the book was, I don't think, it didn't have, or it wasn't Fifty Shades of Grey, it wasn't Harry Potter, it got made because I think it was an amazing concept down its route. And so, it's uh, it's not original IP, but it, it it's as close as it as you're kind of going to get to some degree. It's pretty damn close. Right. Um, and so, it's just been really, really cool and rewarding. And since then, um, uh, kind of another kind of interesting story, I had um, been introduced to uh, a great script a kind of a concept for a script written by um by uh, by a young producer uh sorry the the concept it was interesting to me by a young producer um and then uh and then you know it was a screenplay written by a really talented writer called laurie ashbourne um ended up optioning that script um but kind of wanted to take it in a different direction Worked with a client of mine, Kathy Charles, to flesh it out, who um, ended up not being able to write the script. And so um, Ian Shore, who also wrote Infinite, stepped in with a writer that he works with, a co-writer called Peter Gamble. They also wrote a movie called Office Uprising together. They go back a long ways. They're really talented kind of writing partners and, and really close friends. And even when they're writing separately, kind of bounce ideas off each other. And Peter's also a client of mine. Um, and so they stepped in, wrote the script. And we took that out in, I want to say either late September, or early October, sold within a couple of days, again, kind of similarly to Infinite. Um, and that one is, we just got an amazing director on that, Gigi Guerrero. we're in pre-production and, uh, you know, hope, looking to go to production relatively soon. And so it's one of those kind of crazy things. It's been a, crazy, it's a great time to talk to Ian because, you know, um, Infinite was a massive budget, uh, 1031, which is the thing we just sold is not going to be a huge budget because it's a relatively contained horror film. But, you know, both are getting made by big studios. This is getting made by Orion, the genre arm of MGM. Um, so two very different experiences, I would say. Um, but, you know, both cases where, you know, Ian was involved in a script, you know, wrote it or co-wrote it, and it's it's getting made within a relatively quick time span. Um, you know, it's funny, I, was, I had dinner with a, a friend of mine who's an executive last night, and he said, you know, in this marketplace, it feels like, he was equating it to the housing market mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, and he was saying things either sell Really fast, like within a week or so, or they kind of linger. Um, and I was like, yeah, it's kind of kind of true for this for the you know the feature spec screenplay market where you know it, it feels like it's either people are immediately into it or you know it's it's impossible or very difficult to get interest. Which doesn't right. mean it can't happen over a longer term of time, but uh, it is one of those things where it is kind of it feels like the market is nothing. I feel like that market was always kind of there, but it's really. It's on steroids now, Right. Um, where people, either the concept or the project or the uh, people involved in it are like immediate yeses, or it's a much harder path to yes. So it's kind of been interesting with both those projects that they were relatively quick yeses um, within very different genres and very different budget levels. Um, I don't know
0: if it's true, but I saw, I want to say a tweet, which obviously it's 50-50 chance mm. if it's actually true. But I saw a tweet that said the spec market in 2019 was sort of depressing because they saw, I don't know where they got the chart and the number from, from some publication, that there were only about 80 spec sales Mm -hmm. last year in 2019. I believe that. Uh, What does the spec market look like
1: on your end? The other thing I would say about that number, just before we even get into it, is that number is also the number of scripts that were reported sold. Sure. Sometimes things are sold that didn't sell. Some things sometimes things are sell, and no one ever reports them. There are some studios that are not interested in putting out a press release when they buy something because they don't want to alert the competition to what's going on. You know these are not um government companies. they have no right they don't have to like tell everyone what's going on. you know, look at Netflix, they're not releasing their viewership numbers. numbers right. you know like so there's no obligation per se. there's no moral obligation, certainly. Uh, to to release those things. So scripts do sell that maybe you just don't necessarily hear about. And mm-hmm. I've certainly been involved in that, where something has been sold or optioned and nobody ever heard about it. So it doesn't add to that number. Um, I would say that, you know, we have had a very good track record in selling scripts. I would say we sell a third, maybe 40% of the things that we take wow. out, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Things that we know we're going to sell, sure. right? Like there's things, you know where we do it and, and we know like, like there was a script that Jeff Portnoy had on the, on the blacklist um, called Baron Trump. Uh, one of his clients wrote it. Um, and we we're never going to sell that one. Like that's not really, that, that one was written to kind of get attention to get in the blacklist, you know, to show off the, the, the writer's, you know, talent. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have a good track record. And one of the reasons for that, I guess there's a few reasons. A, we just work really hard on quality and making sure the script is as good as possible. But I would think the even more important thing is we're very targeted about what the th- if we're going to take out something, we're going to try to sell it, what that thing is. And I would say there's really two things that sell nowadays the most. Um, there are exceptions to this always as there are exceptions to anything, but mm-hmm. these are the primary movers. Um, big budget things that can be big budget franchises, which, by the way, is like a home run swing. Um, so infinite would be a great example of that. That's a concept that people got very quickly and that felt like, yeah, that could be, you know, a big movie with a big movie star, um, or low budget horror thriller stuff. So I would say Eli is an example of that. 1031 is an example of that. Um, you know, projects I'm not involved with, uh, such as the shallows is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, there's this thing getting made called Shut In that Melanie D. Toast wrote. That's a perfect example of that. Things that can be done for a limited budget, people have a very cl- clear path to production I would say, um, what's that Crocodile movie from last year that Alexander Aja did? Really, It's really good. Um, it was like Tarantino's favorite movie. I'm blanking on it. I'm sure someone's yelling it at their, at their <laughs> iPhone right now, but um, that is a great example of Crawl. That's a great example of, of things that sell. Um, and those things probably sell even more than anything because they can make, be – so when you when you make a move when you take out a screenplay and it can be made for below $10 million, below $5 million, mm-hmm. Um And it has a really amazing concept because I get a lot of emails of course. From people are like, I have a horror film. It all takes place in one house. It can be made really cheaply. It is about a family and someone who's trying to kill them. And it's like, well, you're not wrong. Yeah, that could be made cheaply, but why would it be made? Because <laughs> it feels like every single thing I've ever heard about in one, in one you know, ever, you know, like, right. oh, boy, how exciting. The thing about 1031 or Eli or, you know, Crawl or, um, you know, other, other low budget shut in, etc., is that not only can they be made inexpensively, they're also fantastic concepts that feel inherently, oh, I've got to see that. Right. You know, I've got to see that. So the concept for 1031, because it was on the blacklist and kind of people are aware of it, I'll just kind of give it, which is you have uh, a main character who is um, a woman in her early 20s. Um, and she takes her niece and nephew out trick-or-treating on the block that they live on, get around the entire block, go home. So just the single block. And she's opening up their candy, kind of steal a piece for herself, finds a note inside, written inside the wrapper of one of the pieces of candy, that says, "Please help me." Kidnapped, going to kill me. Mm. And so, a she has to figure out: is it real? And then, b if it is, which house on their block that they live on is the killer living oh, right. in? You know. And so, it feels like very much in the vein of, I would say, Rear Window, Disturbia, Halloween, like um,
0: Cellular from a few years back.
1: Maybe a little bit less because that's that was a movie you're kind of running around a lot. That's true. But yeah, there's aspects of that phone. Fo- you know, there is a slight aspect of that to some degree. Right. Um. But you know, and there's also an element of like. She's lived on this block her whole life, so who of her neighbors, who she's known for most of her life, oh. could potentially be not what they appear necessarily. Right, right. Um, and so that felt really the kind of thing that you could sell pretty quickly, and something that, that does speak to like larger concerns. Right. Um. So you know that that's the kind of stuff. So it's not enough to be like, oh, it can be made cheaply. That's not a no one. No one's driven by it can be made <laughs> cheaply. What they're driven by, it's a great concept. That's a first thing. Mm-hmm. And then it can be made cheaply, sure. Because if you take out something like Ten Thirty One, we had a really good feeling about it when we took it. Because a, we thought it was a great concept. B, it was a great script, um, and we also felt like there was a lot of homes for it. You know, yes, there was all the regular studios, all almost all of which make horror. There's the streamers, um, but and, you know, we ended and we ended up at one of those, you know, kind of majors, MGM via Orion, but. You know, we also could have gone in. there's a financier that could go make that for $3 million or something. Sure. There's a lot of different options for how it could get done. And so, um, and I think a lot of people are like, well, I'll just come up with a horror movie idea. And, and you know, I, have, I do have clients who are like, I don't really like horror movies, but I wrote this thing because it seems like they're selling like hotcakes. Uh, I would say that if you don't love horror, you probably shouldn't be writing horror um, because if you don't love horror, you're not going to know all the stuff that's been done. And horror is a very difficult genre because so much has been done so people are very demanding about the concept has to feel fresh sure you know it certainly or it has to feel like you know what 1031 is fresh but it also feels like it links back to things you've seen before the rear windows the disturbias the halloweens, halloweens yeah. etc but it's it's a it's its own unique spin on that mm-hmm. you know um just like eli was a haunted house movie but the spin on it was what if you what if you but if staying in the house would kill you, but so would leaving the house, you know. I see. And I would argue, you know, that David Churchill, oh, the original writer on it, myself always saw it was a coming of age movie to some degree, you know. Right. Um. Albeit in the world of a haunted house movie, um. And so that is really important. You can't just be like, oh well, there's a house and there's some ghosts and the ghosts are mean, you know, or whatever, you know. <laughs> right. And I do just see people being like, yeah, then there's a killer, and it's it's. It's not enough. And and the executives and people in the horror world are very demanding because they're like, I feel like I've seen it before. Right, many times probably. Yeah, Yeah. and so I wouldn't say if you're hearing this, you're like, oh, I'll just go write a horror movie. How hard could it be? Trust me that there are just as many horror scripts, if not more, taken out as anything else. So therefore, if you want to sell something and eventually get it made, obviously, it needs to feel really unique. That concept, that original pitch has to be like, oh, I haven't quite seen that before. Sometimes people are like, "Hey, I have a script, and it's just like Don't Breathe, or it's just like Halloween. So therefore, it'll mm. sell." That's not a good comp. It's right. not. I did it just like this, but with a different title. That doesn't get anyone excited. What it needs to feel like is if it's 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 the vein of this, but it's a very different spin. You've never quite seen the story from this point of view, right? Um, and so, yeah, and then yeah, and look by, and then the bar for something like Infinite, the bar for a franchise thing, it's even higher. Because it really has to feel. Because most of the people listening to this podcast, they're not going to be able to option like the bestseller or something like that sure. that becomes a franchise. They can option Harry Potter, or that whatever. It has to be like like I would give the Matrix is one of the perfect examples. That is not based on anything. I mean, look, it's inspired by a lot of things, but mm-hmm. it's not based exactly on anything. And that was a, became a massive franchise that now, by the way, they're rebooting and turning it to another, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, but. Um, That it has to be that interesting and that unique um, in order to get done because it's getting people to spend five million dollars. Because, by the way, if you make a movie for let's call it five million dollars, not the studio, I guess the studios do kind of do that with Blumhouse, but if you make it like a five million dollar movie, it doesn't just cost five million dollars. What it costs actually is you're going to end up at a minimum spending 15 to 25 million dollars. On a, on a marketing spend for that. So like let's say something like Black Christmas. I don't know the budget on that, but let's call it five just for argument's sake. It mm-hmm. might have been more. I, I imagine it probably wasn't more than 10, but like let's call it five. I think there's a pretty decent marketing spend on that. Let's call it $20 million. Mm-hmm. So that means that the whole cost for the whole thing was 25. I'm probably undercutting. It. It's probably higher than that, but let's just say it's 25 for argument's sake. They don't just have to make $25 million. They have to make approximately 50 million or more because when you take something to the theaters, the studios don't get all the money. They usually get about 50%, maybe 60% the first weekend, 50% the second weekend, 40%. the third weekend. These deals are all negotiated on, mm-hmm. a, on a packaging package kind of basis or a slate kind of basis. Um, but let's call it roughly. So in order to make $25 million, you actually have to make fifty million million at the right. box office. And um, different China, for example, I think, you only get 25% of any money you get there. So when you see like, oh, this movie made $100 million in China, what it really means is a studio made $25 million. Right, right. And, um, you know, whereas I think in North America, it's more like a 50% rate. Mm -hmm. So if a movie made $100 million, the studio really made 50%. Um, And so, you know, even for a low budget $5 million movie, you're looking at a marketing spend of roughly 15 to 20 to even get some kind of awareness, sometimes higher, you know? Now, and, and for the bigger budget movies, for something like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a big budget movie that came out recently. But, you know, for a big budget movie, let's say it's a hundred million dollar movie, they're probably gonna spend closer to forty to fifty mm-hmm. to market that thing. So let's say it's a fifty, so that means for a hundred million dollar movie, there's a fifty million dollar marketing spend. That means they need to make three hundred. Right. And if a hundred of that money eventually comes from China, they didn't really make a hundred, they made twenty-five. Right. And so all this is to say that people are like, well, I have a cheap movie. Even a cheap movie, even a million dollar movie, requires, you know, more. The marketing spend is going to be more than the budget of the film. Sure. There's no movie where the marketing spend was less than. Well, that's not true. There are movies where the marketing spend was less than the budget of the film, but those are usually hundred million dollar movies. You right. know, the marketing spend. There's no real marketing spend that is l- less than ten million dollars. I would really say. I mean, maybe some people are really, really. Maybe A24 is very calculated about doing things. But those are rarer exceptions, I would say. Right. Um, most movies cost between five to ten million dollars to market, um, and in a, a five million dollar market uh, marketing budget, unless you spend it really judiciously, the majority of people will have no idea it even existed. Right. So, anyways, that's just something to think about when people are like, "I have this cheap horror movie." Well, is the con- the concept almost has to do the marketing for you? Did right, you hear about right, that right, right. movie, like Crawl? which I don't think, unfortunately, was as successful as it could have been, although I do believe it was a success. And it's a great movie. But, you know, Crawl was like, oh, that's the Alligator movie. Oh, that's that movie. Don't Breathe, that's the movie where this, you know what I'm saying, it's all in the house. You know, uh, um, Bird Box, that's a movie where they can't see. Okay, Quiet Place, that's a movie where you can't hear. Right, right, Or you can't make noise, rather, you know? And so a great concept is, I would say, it's part of the marketing spend in a weird way, you know? So people are very um demanding of that kind of and that's one of the reasons I think Bellevue has had some success is we're very targeted in working with our writers with saying, hey, I don't know that this is different enough to really sell. And we try not to, if they really want to they really want to write something they can do whatever they want. Like they're not our employees, you know, just like sure. we're not their employees necessarily, you know, we work together. Uh, I we don't get paid till they get paid. But um you know, we try to steer them towards things that feel like they could sell. And what they could sell means things that feel original feel things that feel interesting things that when i call up an executive they don't say oh fine they say oh wow that sounds cool i'd love to read that that feels like a fresh take on something i have a list on my computer and what it is are things that have been really popular over the ages like five ten years ago robin hood was on there you know and in fact i had one of the robin Hood projects at warner brothers i was producer on that you know because it felt like the time was right for a robin Hood movie or at least one had been made for a while and then they made one um that wasn't mine (laughs) <laughs> um and so maybe not for another minute, but like you could put Sherlock Holmes on that list like 15 years ago, right. you know. So what are the things? What are the public either public domain characters, as in Robin Hood or King Arthur? Or Sherlock Holmes is exactly public domain. It's kind of in a little bit of a gray area, but like you know, what is a historical event that we haven't quite seen for a minute? You know, right. um, so this is something I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about, which I will not tell you about. But hopefully we can talk about it on our next podcast sure. after we've taken it out. That is based on a very well-known historical event that hasn't been made into a movie for about a decade or so. Oh. So I'm like, oh, okay, that feels like something, you know, we can do. You know, that feels interesting. I, and also the, w- the point of view we're doing it from, I've never seen it told from that point of view before. Which is crazy because it's a really interesting point of view. It feels like a natural place to start, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... That the, a this is kind of the things that are selling in the world. And also that's one of the reasons why we've had some success in the future marketplaces being smart about. It. But yeah, it's, it's as hard as it's ever. Actually, that's not true. It's not as hard as it's ever been. I would say right after the strike in 08 was as hard right, as, it right, was, right. as it ever was. But it's not easy. Sure. It's not easy, definitely. People are demanding.
0: Yeah. Um, going back to the <clears throat> projects that you're working on and as a producer mm-hmm. for clients' work, And we've had the discussion on the podcast many times before. Yes. Uh, Producer versus manager. Yep. As the same role, because agents obviously can't. They're licensed by the state, so they cannot, (coughs) which is... And and there are many managers who are great managers Mm -hmm. and who have... I wouldn't say many. There are some managers out there who are great managers who have no interest in being a producer. There's a few, but not many. (laughs) Exactly. There's not that many.
1: And I can explain why. yeah. Yeah.
0: And then there's many managers who... Told, who do both who do both and then there's a lot of managers who are, are producers managers who happen and, to manage right who are manager in name only they're really producers and they run my we, my joke is there's two farm. kinds of managers
1: yeah they're managers who occasionally produce and there's producers who occasionally manage right right and that's a joke and an oversimplification but there's a level of truth in it. so let's talk a little bit about a how i approach it sure which we've talked about before but always bears repeating yeah um B, why the industry is t- trending that way, um, and also just how people approach it. So first off, I have a pretty straightforward rule, which is if I bring the concept to a client or I bring the project to a client in terms of I optioned a screenplay, a book, whatever. Like you did with Infinite. Absolutely. So Infinite, right. I optioned the book, brought it to Ian. Uh, Eli was an original idea that I brought to David Churchurillo, and he brought another element to it and that became the movie that it was. To be fair, that was before I was a manager. Um Blonde Ambition, that I brought the idea of Madonna and jelly beans to my wife, mm-hmm. um Elise, Elise to write. Yeah. Amazingly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I brought it recently I brought her uh, a couple of years ago, we read on our honeymoon this article about <laughs> K-pop uh to her, which she loved. We brought it to Scooter Bronze Company and then Epic Magazine of the article, so we partnered up with them and we sold that to Fox and now things good things are going with that. I won't go into detail on that one, but we're really excited about that project. Um, you know, so there's there's a clear demarcation point on that. I would say there are, to be fair, there is one project I'm working on right now that was another cl- a client's idea, but we spent a year reshaping it, really working intensely on it. And I, and I said, hey, I would love to be involved in this or that. And he's like, and the client was like, I'd love that, you know, because mm-hmm. you've really been all the way through that, And that's the only time at one of the only times there was another time where I really reshaped something, spent a year on it, taking it from one thing to really another thing. But I, I did, I said, Hey, this is what I'd like to do. Are you comfortable with that or not? And, you know, some people are like, well, you know, of course they have to say that or whatever, but you know, for me, the, the relationship with the client is paramount. And right. I, and that was a scenario where I felt I'd earned my place on that. And look, there are things like my client, Chris Devlin wrote a script called cobweb that we sold a couple years ago. Um, and you know a lot of clients some managers who I've spoken to are like well if you do any notes on a script you should be a producer because you did work on it but I, that's not how I personally feel people mm-hmm. can differ in their approaches on that um, but that's just how I feel and so you know someone like Chris I, you know that was you know yeah, I gave notes on it, but it was really him and it, it really came from him. And, and I, I did, I know when I really reshaped something and spent a year on it and Chris, I gave him notes on a few different drafts of that, but it's, it's really Chris. And so he took it out and got amazing producers and vertigo and, and, and point grade Um, And, you know, that that's moving forward. Lions get really excited about that. And I didn't go on to produce, didn't I? Cause that's not, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And I didn't think, you know, I had earned my place there, you know, and I always like to be like, well, here's how I became involved in the project, you know, and 95, 99% of the time, it's, it's because I brought the idea to a client. So let's talk a little bit about why the industry is trending that way. And this is a pretty easy, easy math to figure out. If a client has a script that sells for a million dollars, I get a hundred thousand dollars, right? Which is great. Sure. But most managers producing fees are look i've had producing fees less than a hundred thousand dollars but that was because the movie was a relatively low budget movie when by the way if they're buying your screenplay for a million dollars the movie's are not going to be a low budget one because right. the uh upfront costs for the script alone are so expensive that they'd be a third of the budget or something sure. so um so like if a management company has a client that sells it for a million dollars to get hundred thousand. great but their producing fee for that movie would probably be close to like 250 500 if you're like anonymous content it's probably a couple million dollars or something like that mm-hmm. so in their head they lose money in that sense um theoretically and that's not by the way that's a purely financially motivated decision um and i'm not saying that's why like anonymous would do it or whatever i'm just saying that's a mathematical thing i think a lot of people are looking at this being like wait all this money's Why am I not producing this? Because I gave notes or I did this or I found the writer and I introduced them to this or, Mm -hmm. you know, I introduced them to a director that's on the project. And you could argue that's producing. That's fair, you know. Um, I don't, you know, it's not a situation that I've been involved in. I haven't introduced a director client onto a project necessarily. Um, So, you know, I I just have my definition of how I do things. But I think, you know, in a time when there's a lot of overhead and a time when it's harder to get movies made, I think a lot of managers are like, why am I not producing every single thing my clients are taking out? Because if one in 10 of those get made, I'll probably make as much money as I'm making from those 10 things selling, Sure, you know? And that's a purely a financial decision. Um, and then, you know, then a lot of people are like, well, I gave notes. I did this, I did that, you know? And everyone has their own different definition of, of what you know if you ask someone like what's a what's a good marriage what's a good what's love what does this look like everyone have their own definition everyone's their own definition of what a producer should what should should do and 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 how and what makes a producer i have my own personal definition right uh, and that's what i operate from is a level of comfort and even then like i said there have been times when i've been like you know what even though i didn't originate this idea or or option this thing a book this is something where i do feel like that and so that's happened once or twice so if that may i don't I don't feel like it makes me a hypocrite at least cuz I'm owning it but like some people could say it does I guess but um but yeah that's you know, that, that is why the industry I think is trending that way and I would say to people who are conce- it's weird it's like a lot of people don't have managers don't ever have reputation, I've never sold a thing are super obsessed with this question um which is it's not wrong to think about it but it's also like is it really the most important thing in the entire world right. to really obsess about? There are, are larger questions about your representative you should have, but it is something to, to, to be, if it's a concern of yours, you should be up front with them about it and say what you want that relationship to look like. And if you're, I, if you're like, I don't think just giving notes is enough for you to be a producer, then you should say that up front to them. Um, and they may feel differently or they may agree with you. Um, so if you feel it's a concern, you can always raise it. Um, And there are been concerns where managers coming out of producers I've heard anecdotally have not helped the project. Um, So that obviously can happen. But to me, it's kind of like people being like, I'm not moving to Los Angeles because an earthquake could happen at any moment. Yeah, it it could. (laughs) But it probably won't, you know. And so the chances of a manager sinking your project um, or that being the reason your thing doesn't sell, it could definitely happen but it's probably not the number one reason it would happen right it'd be pretty low on the list i would say there's probably you know the first thing would be like it feels your script feels the biggest pass i give to things are it didn't feel um unique enough to stand out in the marketplace and that's probably why it's happening but anyways it is a valid concern for people i just don't know it's it necessarily the as with many concerns in modern life i don't know that the concern it's necessarily the weight of people like people give to it is is justified in my opinion right
0: and i think e- like with signing um uh you know a- uh, agreements to you know when you have your material read mm-hmm. uh, releases this, releases mean? yeah excuse yeah. me i'm thinking <clears> nda <throat> like, that's not right when they sign releases like people writers sometimes uh, oh no pre- i never sign a release write, they get pan- oh my god steal their idea and things like oh my like god that. You know, So it's yeah. a similar thing. It's that, a great way to start a relationship. Right, that you're worried about probably the wrong
1: things at that point. Oh, it's crazy. I've I mean, people, material does get started, but it's not as frequently. as It happens. Oh, my God. It right. just – like I had an idea for Robin Hood and someone said, someone oh, my God, they still – no, they didn't steal it. Right. It's just – I remember mean, this Robin Hood's out there in the world, but like the week we took out uh, Ian Christos back, two weeks before that, another Kenamachi back went out. Right. It's You know, it's like – and when we took out our K-pop project, there are other projects set in the world of K-pop out there.
0: Right, ours was just the most awesome. Well, plus, if, if a manager w- loved your concept mm-hmm. or script enough to quote unquote steal it, why wouldn't they sign you? It's the crazy. And then have to write it themselves or bring in another. I've
1: writer? seen scenarios where a manager knew someone else, another client, some other thing. I won't, I'm not going to tell the story on the record. I've seen scenarios where a manager knew something else was going on and held that information back for whatever reason. Right. But I've almost never seen someone steal what I would personally quantify as stealing an idea. Sure. Uh, I've seen their clients get in, I've seen some weird stuff happen. By the way, so small that I can think of the one, one time really. Right. And I've been in this business for over 20 years, um, the reality is. So take like Laurie Ashburn, right? So Laurie has a script called 1031 and has a concept in there that I think is great. You know, I think the script is, is has some interesting stuff in it, but it's not necessarily the permutation that I think will sell. And so I optioned it, and then I went and had other people work on it, right? I didn't just, I could have just been like, oh, I'm gonna steal this idea, ha ha ha. But no, like number one, that opens up a whole like lawsuit or whatever, and. It's like, number one, it's immoral, ethical, whatever. Sure. But also, like, it just opens me up from a legal point of view, and that's just dumb business to do. So instead, I reached out to Lori. I optioned it from her, you know, got people to work on it. And when the script went out, her name was on the cover page, and she is involved as a co-producer. And, like, why wouldn't I do that, you know? And, by the way, if you have a great idea... We could probably sell it, and hopefully, I can work with you on it, and we get it to a great place. You know, like right. it's, it's, you're completely right. That's a real concern of people, and I have people like, "Well, I will not sign your release." I'm like, "Well, good good luck," you know, Because right. like, by the way, if I was to sign you, and you would you know, people like your script, you know, what you do, you do what we call the water bottle tour, where you go and you meet a bunch of executives and say, "What else are you working on?" And you're like, "Well, I can't tell you that." Right? Well, no, you'll steal it. Oh, great! That's a great way to build Thanks relationships. For yeah. It's like ideas are cheap. Execution is everything. Right. You know, and that doesn't mean like I have that idea that I, I, we were talking that I'm not going to bring up on the podcast That's they, but that's based on a public domain thing. Right. That's, that's a real historical event that's out there in the world. And so I just, we have a per- particular take on it that I'm really excited about. And- yeah, that's just you know, I, I don't I'm not like, oh, someone's gonna steal the idea, but I'm like, I don't need to put it out there in the world until we've taken it out. Right. You know, there's no upside to that necessarily. Um so yeah, it's yeah, that that you're completely right. That sometimes people get hung up on the wrong things and they ignore the most important things. And the most important thing is does the representative do I align with their tastes? Do I feel heard? Do I trust them? And it's a weird thing where the people who have had the least experience sometimes the people who are the most difficult and the most opinionated and the most stubborn and, it, and it's also like well maybe that's why you're not successful is right. because you are so rigorous in in that kind of stuff and what you really need to be like do i trust this person do i want to hear their opinions if you if you don't want to hear your representations notes either a there's something wrong with you because you refuse to hear anyone's notes or if those notes are so adverse to you that they, you think they're making the script wrong then you shouldn't be represented by this person because your tastes don't align right
0: Um, speaking of representation your brand new digs here Mm -hmm. uh, many the
1: unnamed location
0: unnamed top secret underground bunker Uh, uh, things have been going great and you had mentioned that your, your the amount of queries and interest you've uh, yes. had in the uh, in your company i wake up to a lot more queries it's than like i used three to. times the amount you used to get i
1: get a lot of queries kevin as i think i was telling you before yeah. that consist of do you accept query letters right <laughs> which i do not respond to because it's a query letter about accepting query letters and right it is not something i feel the need to respond to and right. so if you're querying me about that you could probably save yourself some time and do a modicum of research on it absolutely It's almost like we were talking about
0: earlier, like Mm. going up to someone and asking for a date, saying, hey, do you accept people coming up and asking you for a date? Mm. And And if so, what would be the best way to do so? Yeah, what's the process for that? Yeah.
1: Let me write down some notes so you can (laughs) return it at a later date. Um, And speaking of
0: queries, uh, I've got some questions here that we get frequently. uh, And speaking of of queries, we've gone over it a lot. And it's something that uh, we have talked about, but it's still important and something that people... Ask a lot um, things such as uh, what is heat? What what
1: is he- yeah, everyone says oh they're looking. For heat a- is a great movie, You're right? Which is why bank robbers, maybe not the best thing to do. Or <laughs> if we're going back further, a Burt Reynolds movie. Oh, I didn't see that. One. Written by Bill Goldman. Okay, which to be fair, I have not seen. Uh, what is heat? Heat is. It's so funny. They're like people, are like, what is heat? It's like if you're asking what heat is, you don't got it. Right? You know, sure. it's like how do I make. What is cool? How are people cool? <laughs> well, you're not. Right. That unfortunately, by mere virtue of interest in trying to be cool, you right. are therefore not cool. Heat is. But for those who don't have it now, what is it? it? And how do they get? How do it? I get some how heat? How do they get the heat? Look, uh, let me talk about my beloved, beautiful, brilliant wife, sure, uh, Elise. And because she very much was in a situation where she became a hot writer. I would say she still is, Yeah. but it was a very, there was a very clear period where she was and it, it was obvious. So my wife who's incredibly talented, started working on blonde ambition. It took her two years just so everyone knows good things take time. And she'd been an assistant, um, to Alexander and Alex, Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu on Birdman she'd been an assistant at Universal she'd been an assistant at Anonymous Content she'd been an assistant on a fantastic TV show called Fresh Off the Bone mm-hmm. for an amazing writer called Courtney Kang and worked with Nanachika Khan there and so learned from all these experiences all these great people and um, so and she'd been working on our screenplay and it was an idea she and I had been talking about for a while I know exactly where we first discussed it uh when i was at nyu uh, a really talented guy called jellybean benitez had come in to my classroom and talked about early on working with madonna and also dating her this is back in 2001 to give you an idea and elise and i were in a restaurant uh years later and i was we were talking about interesting people i was like oh madonna's always been interesting i heard this one story about her but that's all i knew and then elise went and did a year's worth of research and knew the subject cold and then we broke an outline together and she wrote an amazing script and that script got taken out in september of 2016 i remember very specifically and it was a story about if people aren't familiar with the script blonde ambition is about the early days of madonna and her struggle in a misogynist uh industry in the music industry in sure. the 1980s at a relatively misogynist time Um, to become a successful female pop star when there weren't very many models for that and to maintain a great deal of control over her industry and her relationship, somewhat star is born relationship, albeit with no one dying uh, with Jelly Bean (laughs) Benitez where he was a big star, got to know her and then she eclipsed him essentially Um, and so just to recap, it was a female driven story set in the music industry with a lot of music in it, right? And around that time Female-driven stories really started to take off. I think it was around the time that the that all this stuff, the Me Too kind of, I don't know what to call it, a movement or the moment or whatever you want to call it, was kind of crystallizing um, and people were becoming more aware of the ways that women were sexually harassed and sexually assaulted and the misogyny, inherent systematic misogyny. And so here was a screenplay, which by the way, we've been working on for two years and we were thinking about taking it out in 2015, but it just wasn't ready yet. Um, so we ended up, you know, waiting to get it right and take it in 2016. And we just managed to hit the moment perfectly, essentially. Not intent. We did – there were – people might might have thought, oh, you just wrote that in three months and like – because it was so perfectly – it was complete luck. And so it really spoke to – a script that spoke to a woman, a tr- female tr- pioneered trailblazer trying to make her mark in a male-driven industry, which is, by the way, mostly still male-driven, you know, as you can still tell, especially mm-hmm. in the country music sector. Um to, de- to this date. And so people are like, wow, this really speaks to the current moment. Also, music movies were becoming massive, massive at the time, you know, um, and have only since gone on with like Bohemian Rhapsody, Stars Born, La La Land, um, uh, Rocketman, a few other that like were starting to really hit at that time. Um, and so she took the screenplay out. We got amazing producers on board, um, particularly Mike DeLuca um, we got a great – All the almost all the agencies in town wanted to sign her, and we took it out, and it became – and people loved it so much. It became number one script on the blacklist, and so she became a quote-unquote hot writer. By the way, she didn't quit her day job for like another – like from when we took it out to September, I don't think she – her day job till April. So that gives you an idea, sure. by the way, that like you're not like, all right, I'm never on the blacklist. I'm out, guys. Mm-hmm. The money's about to flow. And she we waited until she got her the first job, and also we were able to sell uh, option blonde ambition to set a blonde ambition over at Universal. Um, and so we knew that okay, she she's gonna be okay. Um so she became a hot writer. Why was she a hot writer? Well, A, she's super talented, B, she was never on the blacklist, but also she'd written a screenplay um about the music industry about, and it was a music-based movie at a time when music-based movies were really popular and, and by the way only continued to grow and popular she'd written a screenplay that was female-driven at a time when female-driven projects were starting to like really finally really crank up and get people like oh i guess we should a uh do more female-driven projects and b we should hire women to write them revolutionary idea right. um and also i would say the thing i would also speak the reason i talked about her background is that my wife had worked anonymous. She'd worked for an incredibly famous and talented director. She'd worked at a studio for really incredible and smart executives. Um, you know, she had worked under incredible writers at Fresh. So she knew she'd worked at a, a high level management company for a high level director for high level executives for high level writers. And so she knew how to talk to all these people and she'd learned little things from all these people. So when she went and started talking to directors, actors, um, showrunners uh executives studio executives production wings she knew how to speak to them all because she had this background of experience and she knew how to speak executive as it were especially executive right um you know and so that was really helpful in terms of a she hit the zeitgeist in terms of the moment but also she was able to capitalize on that because of of a career she built up over four or five years of working in the industry and kind of gaining relationships and knowledge essentially. And so a, the subject matter hit her screenplay was of the moment, but also she was able, people would meet Elise and be like, wow, you know, she's great. She's, I want to work with her. She's really smart. She's very collaborative, all that kind of stuff. She, she um, did a, her next kind of proper assignment, full assignment, where she was the first writer in She had this script called Queens of the Stone age for Sony, for fantastic producers, uh, for Dakota Johnson, uh, you know, for, uh, great executives over at Sony. Um, and she did a great job at it. That script ended up on the, on the blacklist in 2018. Um, and everyone who worked with her, um, had great things to say about her. And I think that was the next thing that could have really solidified be like, Oh, you didn't just write a great spec. You also were able to work within the system. And so people are like, Oh, you've proven yourself there. And so, She's got, you know, we just announced another Sony project that she's doing called Murder on the Dance Floor for this amazing, iconic choreographer that she's, that she's, and she's working with great producer, She's working with um, Mark Platt and Adam Siegel, you know, a little movie called La La Land right, and right. a lot of other great music-based movies. Um, and by the way, the same executives over at, over at Sony, you know, so they were really happy, they repeat business. And so everyone looks at it and says, oh, wow, this is someone who A, wrote a great spec that was acclaimed of the moment she writes female driven stuff she writes music driven stuff she can write other stuff by the way but like it really felt like oh that kind of crystallized and so i think it really you can't it's like being cool you can't like aim to be hot but what i would say is when that moment hits the way you can like multiply it because like elise would say i would say is a hotter writer Today than she was when she'd just been number one on the blacklist. And the reason for that is that she's proven herself to work within the studio system, to be a collaborative writer, to be a thoughtful writer, to be able to take notes, but also bring her own opinion to things, to be able to write commercial work, um, and then have a sense. You know, we took out a K-pop project when K-pop was just starting to be huge. And by the way, we sat down with some places, and they are like, yeah, we don't want to do a K-pop movie because that's just a fad. Just a fad. right. Just and, and of course, it, it's gone on to prove that it, it is not a fad, sure. you know, Um, and but we were on the early days of that, relatively speaking, when we mm-hmm. first took the project out, you know, and so she obviously is aware and plugged into the zeitgeist. And so what I would say is, let's say you sell us back or, you know, something cool happens in your career. Then you want to be the person who people like, I just met so-and-so. What a great person. I want to work with that person. And then when you work with them, if and when they do work with you, you deliver on that. If you wrote a great spec, write another great spec. If you can prove yourself consistently, that is hot. Like I would say one of the hottest writers in the world right now is Michael Green. And Michael, if you look at Michael Green's IMDb page, it's astonishing. The amount of success he's had in a number of years. I want to grab my phone. Because Michael Green is not some guy who just wrote a spec yesterday. Michael Green has been working. This is a good example, by the way, of like how the career kind of goes is he's been working in television for, I want to say, since the early 90s. Um, and I think it's a good example of how long it can take to... So Michael, I'm just looking at Michael Green's... Also, he's phenomenal. He wrote an episode of Sex and the City in 1998. He wrote an episode of Cupid the original, not the reboot, in 1998. He was in Smallville in the in the early 2000s, and so he doesn't. I'm kind of skimming here, so. But his first credit, his first produced credit, is Green Lantern 2011, which, by the way, not incredibly successful, commercially successful movie. But clearly, people liked working with him because then he is Logan in 2017, Alien Covenant in 2017, uh, Blade Runner 2049 and 2017, in 2017, Murdered the Orient Express in 2017. So that's four credits in one year. Right. And he has Jungle Cruise, Call of the Nile, Death in the, Call of the Wild, Death in the Nile coming up, three credits, I think, in 2020. So and so that's someone... By the way, he's been around since the late 90s. But right. why is he hot now? He's hot now because he's a really talented writer and he delivers and people enjoy working with him. And that's hot. You know, it's not because some crazy backstory or whatever. It's because he's a fantastic writer and people really really like working with him and they have good experiences with him. And so that's what heat is. It's not like you know, it's it's not like oh I sold one spec, suddenly I'm I'm hot. It just it doesn't work that way. It's consistency mm-hmm. in my personal opinion. Sure.
0: Um you had mentioned uh the the Me Too movement and and that mm-hmm. whole thing as part of the whole blonde ambition uh the, the impetus towards the was, success of... Yeah, one. I think... Not, it, I, not to uh, motivate your writing of it, but the, the way, in the trajectory of... I,
1: I personally think that had something to do sure. with it. Because it was a screenplay about women... Right. Triumphing over misogyny and, and institutionalized sexism right. at a time when women... It was coming out how women had to struggle with misogyny and institutionalism. Right, sexism. no, absolutely. It was, just, it was just a lucky kind of zeitgeist.
0: I yeah, mean. but I wanted to bring up something that... Uh, that I know is talked about a lot in terms of minority writers, and mm-hmm. female writers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's brought up a lot that a lot of, of reps and a lot of executives and a lot of different people um, will tell writers uh, that you know basically a majority of screenwriters and TV <coughs> writers rooms, you know, working writers are still primarily you know, in terms of majority, mm-hmm. male and white. Yes. Um, and yet a lot of male writers are told that they can't be signed. Their work won't be, you know, I really can't hire mm-hmm. you for whatever reason because we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Minority I just talked about this yesterday
1: writers. with the final draft guys. Yeah. Um,
0: and is that honestly true in a sense of like, I would love to hire you, but I can't because I need to hire Somebody else is, or is it more of a soft pass? Is it? Let me. Does it yeah. So let's talk about the. Are, you the, know, are they just trying to balance out their crews? Yeah. Let's talk a little end. bit about
1: why that situation. Because it's never is easy to to no. sign a writer. It's never easy no. to sell something. No. Whether
0: they're white or purple or. So black, I mean, what happens
1: whatever. is that you know, for for decades, it's sure. mo- TV writers rooms have been mostly white and male, right? Um, and not very diverse, and not very female um and people suddenly there was an awakening within the last few years like oh yeah we should probably do that we should probably have more people of color more women you know in these writers rooms but because there had historically not been a lot of them it's not like you can be like just make someone a co-executive producer or at least they don't feel comfortable doing so right so where does everyone have to stop everyone has to start at the bottom Right. And so that's a situation that they've come to of like, well, we're going to diversify our writers room, but there's not enough writers of color or female driven female, sorry, female writers, you know, in the mid-level or the upper tier realms. By the way, whether that's true or not, you know, that's certainly the institutional word out there. And so they're like, well, if we're going to do it, I guess we'll have to hire the staff writers, you know, which is tricky in so many levels because... TV is a very, not all writers' rooms, but some are, very um, hierarchy-based world. So it's a little tricky to be the person of color or the women in the room, uh, and they're like, and 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 they're like doing something, of, you know, and you have a comment to say, but you're also the person who technically has is the lowest-ranking member in the room. So it's mm-hmm. just a very tricky world, and that's kind of why it is right now. Is there's a, there is a real impetus to diversify the the tv landscape um and 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 so right now we're kind of in this what i would call a growing pain situation where because so many upper level and mid-level writers are white male and they're just darn enough people they're like oh we'll start from the bottom and as a result you know what they're saying out there is like hey you know that's what we're focused on and by the way there are times when white white males are still hired do you know what i'm saying i have a client yeah. who got hired and so it's not and, but that's kind of it's like this weird thing. And it's probably the same thing. You could look at the Oscars and be like, that's one of the reasons it's like, you know, yeah, there's great stuff out there. It's also like the Academy voting. It's also the fact that so few movies of, you know, with di- about di- like, you know, there haven't been Crazy Rich Asians came out and there hasn't been a million movies about with Asian leads in them since, you know, I mean the farewell, but that's independent movie. And like, we could probably count on one hand, you know, that's one reason I'm very excited about K-pop is that that movie is completely, uh, you know, uh, Korean protagonists, you know, and, and a good chunk we're, you know, figuring out will be, you know, in, in Korean, you know, the same way that crazy rich Asians had a good chunk in, um, I don't know if it was Mandarin or Cantonese, Um, but you know what I'm saying? But there hasn't been some rush, you know, Constance We've gotten more roles, and um, the male lead in that, uh, who I actually love, I uh, forget his name. He's gotten some more roles. Aquafina's gotten some more roles. But it's not like they've been, like, you know, Mulan, you know, but, like, I think Mulan is going to happen regardless. Um, and But, you know, it's not like they've been, like, oh, let's go. It hasn't happened. And I think that speaks to, you know, a lot of things that, I, you know, I can speak to just from having – heard and listened and done the research but you know you know it's just you know there's there's just an institutional setup um if you are a white male and you want to write in television you can still write in television it's just you know we're in a we're in a situation right now where they're looking for diversity which is not a bad thing um and they're starting in the most cases at the at, at a low level you know but you can still do it you can still sell things you know you can still get staffed it happens all the time um, yeah, that's kind of the situation. And so, uh, that's the situation as I see it is like, we're in a situation where there's an impetus to kind of like diversify and, right. and, and because of, because of decades of it not being that way, you know, we're kind of a, a, a moment, a moment in flux. Does that kind of make sense? No,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I just wanted to touch base on it because a lot of times you hear about it, but you don't hear about it sort of explained the reasons behind it and you know, what it actually, um, like I said, you just sometimes hear that, oh, you know, white male writers say I can't get a break. They just won't hire me because I'm not a minority. I'm not a woman, so I can't. And sometimes that, you know, like you had mentioned, mm. it's because of the institutionality of white and male upper levels, mm. they, and they want to bring diversity in. They have to start somewhere. Yeah. And it's oftentimes – And unfortunately, writers, you know, it would be
1: awesome people are like, hey, you're really talented. I'm bringing you on a co-EP level. But right. they mean. don't do it, right. you know. Right. And so it's you, – you have to, like, work your way up. You have to pay your dues. And right. so five years, ten years from now, maybe it'll – hopefully the landscape will look remarkably different. Right. You know, and we won't be like, oh, man, we need to diversify because the, it will be diverse. Right. That, it's it's, it's a, hard. It's a nice ideal, anyway. uh, and I hope that it happens that way. Yeah. But it's always hard. Yeah. And, so I was, and I will yeah. say this, so I have a friend, good friend of mine who used to work here at Bellevue Productions, proud, uh, I don't know if I call him alumni or whatever, but also one of my best friends, mm-hmm. he was the MC at my wedding, a guy called David O'Leary, mm-hmm. who um, is, was a white male uh, at the time in his 30s, um, who had, you know, done some stuff, but he, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't think he'd ever staffed on a TV show, he'd never sold anything. He writes an amazing pilot uh, about something he was really passionate about, UFOs. If you know anything with David O'Leary, you know he loves UFOs. And he was really passionate about it. And he got it out there. And now it's on the air as Project Blue Book. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And he's the creator of Project Blue Book. And he was a white male with no, you know, some feature work assignments. But, you know, nothing huge. And he went and got a TV show on the air that's a big hit. You know? And he's the creator of it. And so that happened, you know? And it's, it's just one of those things where, like, you can be like, "Oh, it's never happening." Then you can point to like twenty examples of when it did happen, right? You know, and yeah, there's a lot more to be said about this. But to be honest with you, I don't know that I'm necessarily the person to say it. Sure. Yeah, it was just, kind yeah. Of, it's like, an interesting thing to discuss?
0: Right. Yeah. Um, especially because you, it's sort of still unclear if if that you know what you had said is the sole reason, which I think is never, the there's never there's never any one reason for anything, right? Or if it's oftentimes if it could be used as a, as a yeah you know soft pass as well. There's never you one reason I mean? for
1: anything. It could be. It could be, you know, yeah. I, I, that the reason I talk about O'Leary is to say that, like, you know, he got a show made. He, sure. It's a creator, yeah. you know, and that, that didn't hinder him, you know. Sure. And I have clients, white male clients who've gotten staffed on TV shows, right. you know. And so there's no one rule. And if you're saying that's the reason that you can't get success, then it's not the reason. Right. There are factors to all things. Sure. You know, if you, you could be like, oh, well, I can't get success because I live in. Nashville, or something. That's why I'll never sell a feature or get staffed on a TV show. But then we can point to someone who that very story happened to. Right. You know, and like, so it's always hard. Yeah. And there's no one reason why anything happens generally. You know, life is complicated.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, We're running a little short of time, but I wanted to touch base because in the past we had talked about it as well. Mm. The WGA ATA sort of dispute,
1: which. Uh,
0: I guess you had been a little more optimistic than...
1: I, I thought I was a, like a cynical person <laughs> to other people. they like, it's never going to happen. And I think right. I was like, ah, maybe for a few months, it'll be over by blankety blank. Right. Oh, my God. I don't even know what to say about it. Uh, I well, mean, I, well, yeah, I guess what there are things to say about things have started to happen. Yeah. I mean, there have been some agencies
0: fairly recently at the time of this recording, uh, you know, which would probably have been a couple of weeks ago now that you're listening to it, it's... You know, some may- before it was smaller agencies by the time and- they listened to them, they're like, Everything's fine Everything's now. Settled. Well, maybe, and then well, <laughs> probably not, I- probably not. Uh, but now, actually, larger agencies, Gersh and EA, yeah. are starting to sign the code of conduct with the Writers Guild uh, to get writers yeah. back under their umbrella of representation. Um, and I know for a lot of managers, it's <clears> been <throat> difficult. Oh, it's in terms terms of really hard. You having to take the load that the agents can you twi- would can
1: you do take? twice as much work but still get paid the same amount?
0: Apparently you can. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> apparently you can. And then yeah, yeah. Anyways, um, I'm optimistic. I, I suspect Paradigm will probably sign the deal. Sure. They're the they're the kind of remaining larger mid tier quote unquote agency. Um, that doesn't that isn't involved in the lawsuit right. and has not signed. Um, my life is better now. My life will be better if they sign it. And my life is much better now that APA, Kaplan, Staller, Verve are, well, I guess Verve was always back in line. Um, Gersh are back involved because I have clients at all those agencies. Um, And so that's great. And if Paradigm was signed, I have clients there, it'd be great, I'd be really happy and I'm hoping that's happened soon. My suspicion is that the people involved in the lawsuit, that that won't change anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But who knows, it's possible. there's also the looming potential strike right. in May, which may or may not happen. We don't know. I mean, I was talking to someone, and they're like, well, yeah, it's not going to happen because someone said it wasn't going to happen. And I'm like, it's my job as a manager to let all my clients know that it could happen. Right. Just like, by the way, I have earthquake insurance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For all my right. poo-pooing right. about earthquakes, I still have earthquake insurance right. um, you know, and a kit in my car. In case right. something happens. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so it's good. Very well it could happen. And maybe that's a factor. Maybe some of the larger agencies are waiting to see if a strike happens or doesn't happen. Right. You know? So, you know, that's always a concern. I, I am loath to predict anything, um, given my track record on the subject. <laughs> um, uh, but given the many, many factors, whether it's the, you know, there's a lot of things going on. Right. But I will say I'm very happy... Ass- to have the agencies back that are back. It was very, very happy email for me to see that occur. Well,
0: okay. So jumping from the WGA ATA to the potential mm-hmm. WGA strike and saying, yes. as a manager, you'd be sort of derelict in your duty if you didn't at least consider the
1: possibility. Yes, and let my happening. clients know that they can consider that right. possibility.
0: What, I guess two questions. What uh, are you advising your current clients don't spend all your money. Don't spend all your money. Uh, and two, what would you say to the pre-WGA, as they call you know, as they're called now, uh, you know, the aspirants? Write your scripts you know, really fast. Write your scripts really fast. To be ready to. What? What? How would an, uh, a strike? Like See, this design, is interesting. Actually, a new writers. I had a WGA who
1: client who's not aware of this. Yeah. Uh, here's re- it's really simple. Yeah. If a WGA strike happens, nothing can get done. The only thing that can get done is they can continue to shoot uh, feature films or TV shows for which scripts have already been written. So let's say you are midway through production on a movie uh, and then the strike happens. You then technically can no longer change or a writer certainly cannot change any of the dialogue, any of the structure, anything like that. No writer can be involved in changing anything uh no scripts can get bought or sold um at least i guess theoretically you could sell a screenplay if you're non-wg you could sell a screenplay to a non wga signatory like let's say there's a producer that's like i want to buy your screenplay for five thousand dollars and you're not in the wg you're like great you could still do that do right. you know what i'm saying but like anything any sales to studios for the most part scripted tv shows shut down Mm -hmm. so maybe they can shoot one more episode or something or pre-written episodes but really there's only so long tv shows can go without writers being involved sure um but really the town completely goes into a hiatus while and you know obviously writers will be out there marching on the picket lines um but yeah there's not much for anyone to do at all um you know, if you're a PWGA writer, I mean, look, we'll probably still be, we'll still be reading screenplays and signing clients and developing specs and doing stuff like that. Although I think technically no one's supposed to do anything, pencils down or, or you know, but like, I, I don't know, you know, but, but we'll- if they're developing their own material, that's it's still- I don't I know. know. Technically, not to, I don't know. The whole yeah. thing is complicated. But, like, certainly non-WJs people sure. can, keep, can keep developing specs and stuff like that. But there, no one would take anything out until the strike was over. Right. You know, that would never, ever, ever, ever. I would certainly wouldn't take... I, I guess if I had a non I I don't know. I just... You'd be, be in development mode sure. is essentially what would happen. And so, yeah, it would shut down everything.
0: But not... Except for animation. Right. Oh, yeah, that's true. But not being... Uh, Not neither animation is covered
1: by AAATSI, just to be clear on that front. Animation is covered by AAATSI, not the WGA. So, Pixar movies, anything animated, would still continue to move forward. Although, actually, no, I guess no. Yeah, if you were WGA, but you're working on an animated movie, uh, yeah, you would it would not affect you,
0: yeah. Um, but not not that either one of us hopes for a strike, but if there were a strike, Mm. would that? Do you think again it's all theoretical? Do you think you would be have more time available <laughs> to read? This is what I what I'm getting at. All I'm, the so things like I hope the, a story happens to the, John is more time listeners. to read me. Right. Read my
1: script, John. Now that I'm just gonna play a lot more Fortnite. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know, maybe. Although I'm sure every single one of my clients, well, actually, a lot of my clients would be like, okay, well, now that I can't work on my TV show or do whatever. Now I am right. You need to write it. I don't know. Probably the answer is like, I guess, but the also answer is almost every single of my clients at that point is going to want to start developing a spec, including the clients who were previously staffed on TV shows. they don't have anything to do. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know that it's not going to make, I don't know that would make, I would, if I was anyone, there's, I think there's almost no upside for a strike to almost anyone with the argument that I guess if you're in the NWGA and you strike and then eventually like, you you win concessions then i guess it's been successful but experience. i don't really know anyone who's like super psyched about it sure you know and the other thing i would say is people don't know this but this is funny i think i retweeted a tweet about this if you sell a screenplay in september you would be lucky to see the check by december mm-hmm. okay because deals take you might sell the deal and be like we agree we're selling to you for a hundred thousand dollars yay and then the actual a legal agreement, the long form agreement takes three to four to five to longer, six months to get done. And then the producer's deal also has to be done, done all the underlying rights deals. They're what are called conditions precedent, which means you cannot get paid till X or Y is satisfied. So if a strike happened and you sold it, but say it was over by August and you sold screenplay in September, then you actually wouldn't get any money coming in till December, January, February, or whatever. So it would be really difficult in the sense that the tap would get turned off for money, and then the money would really start flowing in for a little while, just because that's how Hollywood does business. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, the law, the legal deals just take so long. So it would be really difficult in the sense I get TV would would theoretically start back up again. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It'd be, a, it'd be a really, really... It would have a, a long-term ripple effect. Right. Maybe, you know, look, in terms of, I think, what the WJ is advocating for um, are really important issues. Sure. So uh, it's not for me to say whether or not a strike is worth it. It, it also depends how the studios counter. If they counter in a... Um, they are able to find a compromise or a good compromise that people in the W G are satisfied with, then, yeah, great, you know? Right. So it's not for me to say whether or not a strike is justified. We're also not at that point yet. No, no, no. But... Anyone who says there's no chance of a strike is wishful thinking. Sure. Just like there's, to say there's no chance of an earthquake, there's right. wishful thinking. Right. There's right, always right. a chance. We just had one a couple of days ago. Yes, we did. Yeah. Not a big
0: one. On that positive note, uh, thank you for coming on again, John. It was great talking to you, as always, and great seeing you. Um, be sure to follow John on Twitter. It's at John Zauzerny. That's John. John. Z A O Z I R N Y. Do you have any other social media that anyone needs to know about?
1: No. Well, actually, we have a we have a Bellevue Facebook page, which okay. I which I update. I we actually have also a Bellevue Twitter, but I rarely ever use it. My right. Twitter is the better one. But if you go to Bellevue's Facebook page uh, and become a fan, yeah, I am pretty good about updating whenever a Bellevue client has a victory, which happens more more and more often these right. days, which is nice. Uh, and then we have our like we our Bellevue Productions like new like our actual website we have like a news thing that But yeah, I think the social other than my Twitter my my Twitter, which is yes Bellevue Center, but also writing tips and my random thoughts on Survivor uh, or whatever. Um, but yeah, if you just want to hear about what what's going on at Bellevue, the Bellevue Facebook page is the best one.
0: There you go. Um, and as always, thank you so much for listening and making us one of your writing procrastination devices Hmm. of choice by listening to the show thank you so much and we'll catch you next time remember keep writing